I want to just take an opportunity. I'm going to introduce someone who lives out that reality every single day of his life. That children are a blessing from the Lord. But would you stand with me this morning as we just prepare our hearts through the reading of the word? Hallelujah. Amen. We're going to be reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 16, verses 1 through 4 and verse 31. It says, in the whole congregation. Come on, somebody say, the whole congregation. Of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Okay, this is going to be exciting. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And when, he, and when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the, this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Verse 31. And the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Can we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that your prom- for your promises, Lord, because they are yes and amen. Lord, I thank you that you are our provider. Lord, you are our healer. Lord, you are our, our guide and our comforter. So, Father, I pray that today that your word will guide us and comfort us in Jesus' precious name. Come on, as you're seated, can you just show your appreciation for Pastor Travis as he makes his way up here this morning. Amen and amen. Thank you, Pastor. Look, I mean, that verse said pots of meat and bread to the full. I mean, that sounds like Thanksgiving to me. There's grumbling, there's complaining, there's meat, there's bread. I mean, I've been to that Thanksgiving. I think I've been there before. But uh, I hope you all had a, a great Thanksgiving. Our Thanksgiving was, was really, really good. Uh, we have been away from our main family for a long time. God called us uh, out of Ohio in the year 2000. I joke sometimes, I say there's a lot of great people that come out of Ohio, and the rest of them stay. Uh, so uh, if you get that, you can laugh about it. If not, come see me later, and uh, I'll explain it. But uh, growing up, we, we had great family celebrations. We, we always got together as a family. We put the spread out. We, we ate. We did all that stuff. And, uh, you know, since we've been away from home for quite a while now, uh, we've missed out on some of that. You know, we've, we've been very, very blessed to be in church families that extend uh, their hospitality to us, and we've gotten to experience all kinds of new foods and, and new side dishes and all this, and that's exciting. Uh, but there's nothing like family when you have that opportunity. And uh, this, this Thanksgiving, my parents had moved in next door uh, last year, and so this year we just did us and, and, and the folks, mom and dad, came over, and, and we did Thanksgiving, and uh, talking with mom and dad afterwards, they, they said it, it felt like how it was growing up again. Like it, it had that, that same kind of homey, uh, I don't remember that painter that did all the magazine covers, like it had that kind of feel to it again. It, it just felt, it felt right. And uh, I love that because uh, as, as Pastor Joe alluded to, I, I am a family man. I have lots of children and, and I love them and y'all are very, very blessed. Uh, we get, I guess we get to do that again here not too long from now. So that's exciting. But uh, my growing up, Everything surrounded around family. Uh, I didn't really realize it growing up. It just kind of happened. But all of my favorite memories 
all of the things that I looked forward to. I mean, I had other stuff. I had jobs. I had sports. I had all these activities. But the things that I really, really look forward to, the things that I was most excited about, all surrounded around family. And, and with that, food. But, uh, you know, some of the biggest things were, were the Thanksgiving uh, meal. We always had way too many people for the houses that we were in uh, show up, way too much food. You know, we, we, we all fell asleep to football. The, we tripped on the fan, I think is what Pastor Joe said earlier, like that's something in the turkey. We all fell asleep. We ate second Thanksgiving. It was great. You know, Christmas, all that. We got together. Uh, you know, even as a family, we got together every single Thursday night. Uh, that's just what we did. Everybody drove in and hung out and just shared stories, drank coffee, ate pie, and, you know, did all that kind of fun stuff. And, and some of the things that I looked most forward to was when we took a little weekend trip, uh, just not planned, you know, mom and dad were off work and that threw us, me and my brother in the car, and, and we just went to go see somebody, somebody in the family, typically a friend, a close friend or family member, we went to just go see them. Most of the time, uh, we didn't get to know where we were going before we went. I think dad liked to play that game and like keep us guessing. And I guess that's why I do that to my kids to this day. You know, we got invited over to somebody's house yesterday and we, we wouldn't tell them where we were going because it's more fun that way because they're like, where are we going? Get in the car. It's going to be awesome. Like just know it's going to be awesome. And it always, always was. We went to a lot of different families, houses, and and, and places, but the one that has the most memories that have stuck out to me was my Aunt Deb and Uncle Ted Bozzetti. And um, they, lived, I don't, they lived multiple places in Ohio growing up, but every time we went, you know, we loaded up. If we knew we were going, we were really excited because they always had something new, something interesting, something to explore. If any of you are those, those inquisitive people and you got to get your hands into everything and you got to look and you got to find this was the place to go. You know, I love watching those like American picker shows and stuff where they get into those barns where there's all kinds of stuff and you, they find all these crazy, that, that was my Uncle Ted. He had everything. And so, uh, you know, it was the place where I broke my first bone. I broke my collarbone there. That's awesome, right? Like how many collarbone breakers out there? Yeah, come on, that hurts. I did it three times. I liked it so much, I did it three times. Uh, and so I broke it there, three years old, three steps, fell down. Surely it wasn't broken. It was broken. Uh, it was, I, I don't remember it. Mom remembers it. And uh, so we, hit, we did that there. I remember going one time and uh, my uncle had bought like the billiards hall down the road, something like that. It was weird. Like he just decided he's going to buy that and that was going to be his business. And so we spent the whole evening just shooting pool and trying to like think that we were really, really, really good at it. And we were probably really, 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 really bad at it. And, uh, you know, just had fun doing that. I remember he bought a house at one point that was like three stories, maybe four in a basement, like this big old house. And, uh, you know, my whole goal that day was to explore every single room, look into every single closet. I wanted to know everything about this house. And, and especially when my Uncle Ted said, hey, look, you can, you can go anywhere, you can play with anything, but like, not that closet. And I was like, not that closet. That's my closet. That's where I'm going. Like, you shouldn't have told that. That's my closet. I'm getting it. I didn't get in there. Nate, I didn't get in there. I really want, there's something cool still in that closet. I didn't get into it, and it's still, I lose sleep over it. But like, I was that kid, I had to explore it. You know, that same house, he sent us down to the basement, and the basement had a two-lane bowling alley in it. I'm like, who is this guy? Like, it was all bricked off, and we couldn't like actually use it, but like, it was there. And I'm like, this guy has a bowling alley. He's awesome. 
Like, he's my favorite uncle, and he still is. And, uh, you know, another time we went, and they were, they were at a farm, and uh, in the barn, they had a Model T Ford, like those old, like the first Fords, like cool car. And, like, of course, I'm like, can you start it? Like, I mean, it's cool that you got it. And so he did the crank in the front because, like, there wasn't the regular start. Crank, crank, crank. Got it started. Loaded up into the Model T. Drove around the block, waving like we were, like, the king and queens of the world. Like, everybody look at us. We're in this old car that's barely running. But we were having a blast. The next time I went back, I was like, I'm getting back in the Model T. He said I sold it. And I was like, oh. He sold it. He's like, I bought a fire truck. I'm like, a fire truck? You have a fire truck? Man, you are the best uncle ever. But one of, the, one of the most vivid memories I have from going out there was when they were at the farm. And they, as, as you have figured out now, Uncle Ted always had his hands in something. And he decided this year he was going to have bees. Like he wanted to do natural honey and have bees. And so I'm all excited. I'm probably, I don't know, 8 to 10 years old. And I just want to get in there, and I'm going to harvest me some honey. Because, like, I've heard about this honey, and, like, I, I've heard it's, like, the best honey, and I want to get it. And so, of course, my mom is wiser than me, and she's like, no, no, no. Boys, you're not helping with the bees. Like, you're going to be outside. We're going to take care of the bees because she didn't want us to, like, get stung all over and, like, deal with that forever. And so, but I can remember hearing the sound of the bees in, in the barn. Like, you could hear, there's so many, they're, they're rustling up, they're smoking, they're doing all this kind of stuff, they, like, calm them down, but you could just hear them around and, and coming around, and you'd sneak up close to the door, and, like, and then you'd see one fly by, and then you'd run the other way because you didn't want to get stung, but, like, it was so intriguing. The sun was, like, the brightest the sun had ever been that day. It was just one of these, like, Disney movie days. It was just, like, the sun seemed like it was setting all day, and it was a perfect light and all this, and we ran around and played and, and heard them doing the bees, and... And they eventually came out, and they had jars of honey. I mean, like, jars of honey. And so if any of you are like me, the first thing I wanted to do was unscrew the lid of the jar and go elbow deep into the honey and start eating it, right? Like, I mean, not like just a little finger. Like, I'm going all the way in. I'm getting all the honey. I'm going to get some of that honeycomb. I'm going to chew it. I'm going to do all this. But I wasn't allowed. And we, we ate supper that night and loaded up and went home. <coughs> And uh, when we got home, then we were allowed to start eating this honey. Now, I'm telling you, it may not have been this big of a jar, and my mom's here, and she's probably thinking, you're, you're, you're wrong. But I was little, so, like, this is how I remember it. It was like this big jar of honey, natural, the real deal, organic honey. And we started to be able to eat it here and there. Like, she'd make us toast and put a little honey on the toast or on a waffle or a pancake or whatever you could put the honey on. And when I tasted that honey for the first time, it was like my, my whole head exploded. Because I'd never had the real deal honey. I'd had the little Smucker's packets from like McDonald's or whatever. But like the real honey, if you've had real honey straight from the comb, it's different. It's sweeter. It's just, it has a different texture to it. And, and it just, I couldn't go back to the old honey that I had before. I always wanted that honey. Now, it ran out eventually, and then we find places to get natural honey now. To this day, mom still has natural honey, but, like, there's nothing like the real thing. And I realized that a taste is good, but a promise realized is better. And so today we're talking about the Israelites, and we're talking about manna here. And I know that that's the most, like, captivating topic in the entire Bible is, is manna, but that's what we're going to talk about today. Because I was reading this, <coughs> 
And I felt God speak something that I hadn't noticed before. And, and in our verse here, I'm going to reread the, um, the last passage there that Pastor Joe read to us in um, chapter 16 of Exodus, verse 31. And it says, And the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And so, I'd never gotten to see manna. I wasn't in the wilderness. I wasn't part of the Israelites. But they describe it here. And they say it's like coriander seeds. And I almost brought a, a container of coriander from home. But if you've seen a coriander seed, they're just small, you know, little round balls. And they get ground up and used in, in, in all kinds of different dishes and cooking. But it says it was like coriander seeds and it was white. And so I don't know, like we all have a picture. I'm sure you can like close your eyes and like imagine what does manna look like. And you have something in your mind that that's what it looks like. And um, some of you may be right. Thank you. Uh, some, of, some of you may be, may be right. Some of us may be wrong. But they, they describe it here for us. They start getting a little bit of a, a picture, you know, that it was, this, it was white and it was, it was small and, and maybe it was a, this long... Uh, connected little bumps, like little balls of, of white manna that came across and they harvested up. Maybe it looked like flatbread. I don't know. But what I do know is the second part of that verse says it was like wafers that tasted like honey. I know what a wafer looks like. I've had wafers. You know, we can take puff pastry. We can take pastry dough. We can cook it out. You can, you can make baklava. You can put the honey on it. And you know what that tastes like. It's good. It's crispy. It's, it's got that taste of honey. And, and if it's made with real honey... It's better, but, you know, that they described it and said it tastes like honey stood out to me. Why, why specifically honey? Why, he's speaking to the Israelites. Why is he necessarily talking about honey here? And why didn't he say it was exactly like honey? Like it was honey in, embodied here. See, when I think about this and and I'll pick on Pastor Joe a little bit because he likes the Perrier water and all that kind of stuff, but he just does the unflavor. But if you get one of those flavored seltzer waters, right, like a strawberry seltzer water. Anybody ever had one of those strawberry seltzer waters or one of the lime or the kiwi or whatever? And, and it says it tastes like strawberry on it, right? This one's not. It's just water. But it says it tastes like strawberries. But I've decided that those cans must be shipped in a container that's next to another box that's across the whole truck that has strawberries in it, and some of that essence came across the whole truck. I mean, it way across the whole truck, and then it came to the water, and it just gave it a little, just, just a little kiss of strawberry. Because if you drank one of those, it kind of tastes like strawberry. Like, I can, I can get there. I can think of a strawberry in my head. But it's like I ate a strawberry and licked the battery, right? Like it doesn't taste, it doesn't taste right. It's not necessarily bad, like I drink them, but it's not a strawberry. You know, growing up, I, I grew strawberries in my, in my dad's uh, garden, and, and they were the biggest, juiciest, ripest things. We made jam for days on it, and they were the best thing. I mean, we would run out every day to just see if one strawberry was ripe so that we could pluck it before my brother did and eat it. Right there. Not wash it, not do it, just eat it right off the vine because it tastes better with a little dirt, right? But that's a strawberry one. I mean, if you say it tastes like strawberry, I want it to taste like a strawberry, not like that. And I wonder, did the manna taste like honey? 
like these seltzer waters taste like a fruit. I don't know how much of the honey, but it wasn't the actual thing. See, they had a promise back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, and it says, So I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. See, they already had this promise. They, they, they'd gotten a taste in the manna of God's goodness, but he had already promised them something much bigger. He had promised them a land not that had milk and honey, not a land that had a rouses. Like, it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. And I believe that, that there was some poetic license here and that, that really we're talking about more than just the actual physical milk and honey. We're talking about God's goodness, God's provision in this land. It didn't say it was a small land. It said it was a large land. It was a, it was a good land that he had promised them and that it flowed with milk and honey. The milk and honey represented his provision, that he had everything there that they needed. It was already there. They just had to come and take it, that, that his rest was going to be upon them there. They had just come out of slavery in, in Egypt, and, and they were going to have this land where they no longer had to toil for a master, but they could have their own land, that they could build their own property, that they could do their own thing, they could start their own families, that no longer were they forced to maybe include somebody else's God in their worship, but they were able to worship their God, the God, and one God, and this land was for them. They could, they could feel God's presence, His joy. All these characteristics were there. That's why it was flowing with milk and honey, but it literally was flowing with milk and honey. That the animals were there that would produce the milk for them, the, 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 the food that they needed. And, and archaeologists have done digs, if you want to put into that, and found honeycombs that they believe date back to that time, that there was literal honey there waiting for them. And so they had all this promise, and they knew that it was there for them, but they had a little taste of it. They had a little manna before they got there. See, I believe that if they would only taste and see, if they'd only taste and see the goodness of God, they'd only taste and see His promise, His land, what He had given them, this daily miracle in the wilderness would no longer be enough. You have to understand, it was a miracle. The things that they, they, they experienced to like wake up every morning and to have your manna there waiting for you that's amazing. Look, how many of you guys did the most of the cooking for Thanksgiving? Now, I'm raising my hand, but I didn't. I'm, I'm lying. It, it, was, it was her. I did a little bit, a little, just a little bit this year. Um, if you've ever been the one, because we, we do the, the carry-ins, the, the, you know, hey, bring a dish, everybody bring a dish, and we're all coming together. But if you've been the one to prepare an entire Thanksgiving or Christmas meal, it's an ordeal. I mean, like, the planning and the, and the preparation to go into for just preparing this one meal is, is sizable. I mean, I know the size of my oven, and it's a typical oven size, right? And most of us have one of those in our home, maybe, maybe two. But with all these side dishes, all the casseroles and the mac and cheese and the, and the potatoes and the, the, the turkey and the ham and the go on and on and on, and you can sing that Thanksgiving song in your head right now. Like when you're, when you're making all of that, it's a lot. 
you know, first you've got to plan your trip to the grocery, and you've got to take, like, two buggies because, like, it's a lot of food. And, and your Dave Ramsey's budget is all messed up because, like, I mean, you just do what you got to do. That's, I mean, I guess that's an emergency fund, maybe, probably not. But, like, you have to, like, plan it all and get it all, and you come home, and you start putting it together. You start making your casseroles. You put them in your dishes. You put them in the refrigerator so they can be baked in the morning. You do as much prep as you can, and then you hope that you didn't forget something, and you have to run out on Thanksgiving morning and fight all the people to get, like, the last, like, whatever it was. Because, of course, they're going to be out of that. Like, I have no more salt. Neither does the grocery. Like, they're done. Like, they have no more. It's, it's out. But, like, all the prep, all the work just to have one meal – and somebody better tell you it tastes good. I'm just saying, like, if this, somebody doesn't say that turkey tastes good, like, they can't come back next year. I don't know what to say, but, like, there's a lot of prep that goes into it. They had dinner at their doorstep in the wilderness, essentially. And there's some work that they had to do and prepare with it, but, like, God provided every morning. They weren't running back to Egypt to get groceries. They weren't running someplace. Like, it was there where his presence was. That's where the miracle was. Every day, they'd go out and gather as much as they needed. Don't gather too much, turns the worms, gather as much as you need, twice as much uh, before the Sabbath, and, and it's there. But if they would just, you would think if they could just see the land, if they could just taste of the land, if they could just have a little something of it, then maybe this manna wouldn't be enough. And, and the story goes on that, that, that they'd send the 12 spies. And these 12 men get to actually go into the land. They haven't taken the land yet, but they go and they experience everything that God had said. And it's very interesting to me that they come back and only two are like, we need to go. Out of 12, two. Ten men come back and be like, nah, we're good. We're going to stay right here in the wilderness and we're going to keep on eating our honey-like crackers. Like, I'm good with that. And they saw it. They saw all that the land had for them. They saw what it would, what it would produce and, and, and the opportunity that they had, but they were scared. Why? Because another people had been there. Which I'm, why, why that they were surprised? I, I don't know. It's a, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Of course, some other people had went there. I want to go there. Like, let's go and, and do it. But they, they couldn't trust God to give them that land, even though he had already promised it to them. The difference between Caleb and Joshua and those other men were they didn't forget who God was. See, they had been in Egypt. They had been slaves. They had watched plague after plague after plague after plague after plague after plague plague come and Pharaoh not bow down and not say, Yes, your people can go and, and, and stand in, in disobedience and defiance against the Lord. And they watch God be faithful over and over and over again and give the people that didn't serve him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn their hearts. They had watched the hand of God pass over their house and spare their children in the last plague. They had watched these miracles of God happen in their own lives. And when they were finally free, they had went out and got to the Red Sea and stood there as Moses stretched out his arm and the sea was split and they passed on dry ground. They walked through that. Look, I haven't done that. Like if they put that in an amusement park, I'm going. Like I want to do the Red Sea experience. We'll walk through. I hope it doesn't break down when I'm halfway through because it ain't God. But like, 
they walked through and saw the walls of water next to them and experienced God's reality, God's promise to them that he would take them out of Egypt. And they had sat and watched him provide in the wilderness food for them and their clothes not wear out and do all these things. And seemingly these ten men forgot how good God was, how powerful God was, how he was capable of all things. And these giants, these, these mighty nations that were there were too much. And they were willing to be satisfied by a taste of a promise that they were given for 40 years. The 40 years they walked in the wilderness. I can't imagine the level of frustration. You know, to the point where God was gracious to a point, but he said a generation will not taste of the promise. You didn't believe, I can't give it to you. Except for the two men. Because they would get a chance to taste. They would get a chance to see again that land. And 40 years later in, in Joshua 5, 10-12, it says, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. As soon as they were able to walk into God's promise, they no longer just needed the taste of what he had to just sustain them through. The manna wasn't necessary anymore. As soon as they ate of the land, as soon as they partake of the promise, and stepped into the promise that God had for them, the manna was not necessary anymore. It was gone. They didn't wake up anymore and have the manna on the ground. They didn't have to do that because they were in the land. They were walking in that promise. There's no longer a need, a substitute for this promise anymore because the promise was fulfilled. Once they had received their promise, I think these two men realize that a taste is good, but a promise is better. I've sat in services. I've been in revivals. I've, 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 I've felt the goodness of God, and I think I've been guilty of having God give me a promise and being happy with just a little, a little taste of the promise and not pursuing after it and, and letting go of the rope a little bit, and, and sitting there in my own wilderness and saying, oh, just a, this, this taste of God this morning, this, he's so good in that second worship song in our, in our third set, like, mm, God's good there, and I, I was satisfied with just a taste when he's given me this great, great promise, and I just sat satisfied. I'm no different than the Israelites. They were satisfied for 40 years. Not happy, not content. Pacified, maybe, is a better word. For 40 years, by a taste of the promise. Seeing a little bit of God each day. Look, John 6, 47-51 reads, the most, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, 
that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Look, we have this new promise. After the feeding of 5,000, Jesus is speaking and says, stop looking for this. I am the life that you're looking for. I am the bread. Eat of me. Come to me. I give life. He references what his father had done in the wilderness, that he gave manna and it sustained them for a life, but they died. He came to give us life and life more abundantly, like to give us the fullness of the promise. That's his whole purpose of coming, to redeem us to him so that we wouldn't have to be satisfied or pacified by something else. I think it's interesting that as I was looking into manna and I was looking into what the Israelites uh, did, there's a point where uh, scholars believe that even though we know they, they, they complain, they weren't happy, uh, you know, they, they asked for quail, they did all this stuff, even, even in, the, in the midst of God's daily miracles in their life, in the midst of seeing his, his pillar of, of fire and pillar of cloud in front, like even through seeing all this, they still complain. Right? And, and in that, scholars still believe that the Israelite people would take three moments a day and pray and thank God for the manna. The thing that they hated, the thing that they resented, the thing that they didn't want anymore, the thing that they were looking for something better, they still would take time to stop and thank God for the bread in their life, for providing for them to be able to continue. And they would thank him for it. Look, this passage we just read said Jesus is the bread. How many times a day are we thanking God for him? How many times a day are we stopping what we're doing and saying, Lord, you're just so good. I, I don't have anything else to say, but you, I can't do anything without you. Lord, thank you for my salvation. Lord, thank you for the breath in my lungs. Lord, thank you for another step in front of me. Lord, Thank you for the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing. Like, just to take a moment and thank him for being the bread that will not allow us to perish. A bread that's better, a better manna in, in, in essence. Look, he, he's given us the ultimate promise. A promise better than just a land flowing with milk and honey. In Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no death, more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. We have this ultimate promise of being able to spend eternity with no pain, no death, no sorrow, no suffering. Because we've chosen the bread of life. Because we've chosen His sacrifice. Because we've chosen what He did for us. 
It's a much better promise than just a land flowing with milk and honey. It is the land. It is the ultimate land. There is none better. And we have that opportunity in front of us, but yet I fear that we are satisfied by, by lesser things. That we turn to other things to appease whatever's going on inside of us instead of continually, daily choosing that bread again and choosing that bread again and choosing that bread again. I love Caleb and Joshua. They're great examples because they had faith. But when I look at it on a surface level, I think, man, they just, they had faith and God rewarded them individually, those two men. They got to go into the promised land. They got to live there. They got to, to, to take their family, do all these things. But what I think Caleb and Joshua did and what I think that God wants us to do is they carried a hope for a whole generation. Because there was a whole generation coming after them that needed someone to lead them, needed somebody to believe in God's promises, to tell them of the stories of what happened in Egypt, to tell them about the stories of the Red Sea, to tell them about God's goodness so that they would believe that this land that had been promised is their land. And they carried that hope for a whole generation. Not pridefully, not pushing themselves to be a leader, not pushing themselves to be name recognition, but serving the man of God until it was their time to step into the land. It's a big thing. There may be no promised land without those two men. I don't know how God's story would have turned out differently. Maybe there would have been another one in the next generation and he'd have started, I don't know, he has his, his ways, but this is how it happened. And so today, church, we have an opportunity to stand as these men stood. We have an opportunity to stand as the hope for a lost generation of people that have not had an opportunity or have not taken the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't think there's a person in here that could say they go through a 24-hour period without running into somebody who has not tasted of the Lord's goodness and are walking in those promises. I think every day I come into contact with somebody that needs that hope, that promise that God has given us. Because it is God's heart that none shall perish. Not, not that just most won't perish or that some won't perish, that none shall perish, but yet there's those around us that are perishing every day. No longer am I willing to stand and be satisfied with a taste. No longer am I willing to just taste of that honey and be like, mm, that's pretty good. I want the fullness. I want the richness of that honey that was harvested from my uncle's uh, beehives. Like, I want the real deal because I know that that's the only thing that satisfies. We can't just sit and wait for his promises to show up on our doorstop like the manna did. We're promised Jesus. We're promised the Holy Spirit. He's sent the Holy Spirit, one that is greater than he, to, to, to reside with us. I said this in first service in, in the altar time that 
the Israelites had God's presence there in physical form in those pillars. They could see it every day, which is awesome. I mean, forget about any restrictions. If we start having pillars of God's presence come, people are going to flock and they don't care about protocol. But I had this realization as we sang the last song that we are those pillars. His presence resides in each one of us. He still has his pillars in the community. It's us. We're the ones that are supposed to be out there representing his goodness, his glory, his promises, all the things that have changed my life. Pastor Darrell was saying earlier in opening service that like he can remember his life before God got a hold of him. Look, think back and remember who you were. Think back to what God's done in your life. I don't want to go back, and I won't. But am I willing to walk as a pillar in the community that people might see God's glory on me? That they'd see past this and see Him and be drawn to us that we would have the opportunity to share His promises, to share His goodness, to share that there is a bread that you can eat of and that you will not die. Or are we willing to set satisfied by something that's lesser? Are we willing to be placated by just a a moment here or a moment there? No longer am I willing to be just pacified by a moment here and a moment there. I refuse to live the rest of my life. I don't know how much more time I have but I want to be a pillar. I want to bring people into the promised land. I want to walk as Caleb and Joshua walked. I want to have that faith. I don't want to worry about what the other spies are thinking. I know what God promised me, and I'm going to stand on that because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who else can give you that promise? Nobody. They can promise it, but they can't come through. So as we close, I'm going to invite the worship team out, and we're, we're going to have an opportunity to stand as Caleb stood, stand as Joshua stood. I'm not saying that we're them. I'm not saying that we're, we're any better than anybody else who walks this earth, because we all know what we had in our past. I'm a sinner saved by grace, just by, like the rest of you. But if he can save me, if he can save your neighbor, if he can save me, He can save that person that you've been working with for years. He can save me. He can save that person that every time you see him, you want to turn around and run out of the room because you can't even stand to be in the same room with them. That none shall perish. So here's our challenge for today. If you're willing to stand with me, And it's going to be, a, it's, going to be a, it's, it's tough. It's a daily battle. That's why I, they, they, I'm the daily bread. Like, turn to me. If you're willing to hold that hope for another generation, to hold that hope for those that have not heard, to hold that hope for those that have not tasted, they have not seen yet. As the worship team begins to play, I want to challenge you. And this is a little bit out of our comfort zone. Look, I know we're in, we're in COVID regulations and all that. I get it. But if you're comfortable, and willing. Our altar is big. 
I don't know how wide the sanctuary is, but it's, it's, it's big. And I think you can spread out good enough to have some, some distance in there. There's something about responding to God's word. There's something about getting up out of your seat and coming forward to respond to God's challenges in our life. And today I'm going to ask you to do just that. That if that's you, and you want to hold that hope for your community, you want to hold that hope for your family, you want to hold that hope for the lost ones that are around you, I'm going to invite you to come into this blue section of carpet and stand as we worship the Lord with one last song. And then we'll close out in prayer. So if that's you today, I invite you now to come and join me up here in this altar.